and welcome to the OBA roundtable discussion on the future of pharma. Um, I'd like to introduce our panelists here with us. Uh, Andrew Harvey, uh, Andrew McLaurin on, on, on the right, on the corner, is, um, he is the uh, stipendary lecturer in Lady Martha Hall and has just completed a visit to Myanmar to support the constitutional reform process. Um, Andrew Systems involves training for MPs and meeting with key stakeholders, uh, including Donald Sansuti and the Speaker of Parliament and the Chair of Constitution Review Joint Committee. And ben Benedict Roger is the author of Burma, A Nation at Crossroads, um, among other books. And he is also East Asia team leader at Christian Solidarity Worldwide. Ben has traveled um, widely in Myanmar in the region and regularly briefs European and US government on the issues of human rights, specifically on the freedom of religion. Um, Harvey Limiyu is the principal Myanmar analysis at Oxford Analytica, and he grew up in the country where he has worked in conflict area, um, affected opium cultivation areas of Eastern Shan State. His country analysis is read by government international organizations and uh, corporate clients, and has been cited by Financial Times and among others. So I'm very excited to have these expert brilliant speaker with us. And I have to say, tonight is going to be my highlight event of the year. So I'm really, also at the same time, really encouraging you all to take this opportunity to ask questions and get to know them afterwards. So I'd, I'd like to start with Ben. Um, ben, you've been, you've talked a lot about ethnic conflicts and religious violences and speak, also speaking out for democracy in Burma. And um, I understand that you have prepared a visual aid for us tonight. Uh, so our theme tonight is on um, will 2015 prove a game changer in the country's trajectory? And how radically will the political landscape be transformed afterwards? So would you share with us all your expertise and experience with that? Sure. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Pang, for um, that, that introduction and, uh, and for setting the, the expectations so high. <laughs> um, I hope we can live up to, to uh, uh, your uh, expectation that this will be the highlight of... <laughs> um, uh, and thank you, everybody, for coming. And I, I want to thank Andrew and uh, Jose as well. It's a, a privilege to, to share this, uh, this panel with them. Um, as has been said, I, I work for a human rights organization, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, uh, and we work on a, wider, a wide range of human rights concerns, but as Pang says, uh, our core specialism is freedom of religion or belief, uh, and we work on freedom of religion or belief absolutely for all, uh, as it's set out in Article 18 of the Universal Declaration uh, of Human Rights. And so, in the context of Burma, I've been working very closely with not only the Rohingya people, but also the wider uh, Burmese Muslim uh, population. And I'll come back to that during the course of uh, the presentation. I think one of the things I would say at the outset is that when I first started working on Burma uh, more than 15 years ago, freedom of religion was, of course, a component of the human rights picture, but, but certainly not uh, the dominant issue. And that was reflected in the approach that we took uh, in 
looking at uh, the wide range of human rights concerns, uh, ranging from child soldiers to rape as a weapon of war to political prisoners, torture, uh, displacement, uh, and, and so on. Um, in the last couple of years, what is our core specialism as an organization uh, has actually come to the forefront of uh, the challenges that Burma faces, and, and I'll come back uh, to that uh, shortly. I think um, I, I, I will assume that most of you uh, have some level of, of knowledge about Burma, and I, I don't know to, to, to what degree uh, uh, is reflected in the room, but, but I would just start simply by saying that, as we all know, over the last uh, two years, uh, some extraordinary changes have taken place in, in Burma, uh, and I think we would all want to welcome those changes and uh, work with them and, and, and see uh, the positive uh, side of the situation. But I, I am increasingly concerned that I think there are two dangers in how we see Burma today. Uh, one, which I think is the predominant danger, uh, is the danger of what I call premature euphoria, uh, a sense in the international community that uh, because Doang San Suu Kyi is out of house arrest and, and is in parliament, uh, because many, many uh, political prisoners have been released, because there is progress on negotiating ceasefires with uh, almost all the ethnic nationalities, uh, somehow uh, our job is done and, and, and all is well. And you see that in, in the change of language in governments, you see it in the uh, multiple um, articles about uh, uh, tourism in Burma in, in the Sunday newspapers, um, you see it in, in uh, people. I see it, in fact, um, you know, a few years ago, uh, I was desperate to talk to people about Burma because so few people seemed to be aware or interested. Uh, so anyone who showed interest in talking about Burma to me, I, I was very eager to talk to. Um, these days, not hardly a day goes by without somebody uh, saying, I'm going on holiday to Burma or uh, I'm, I'm thinking of, of doing some kind of business in Burma. Uh, and that's great, but, but it certainly changed a lot. Uh, and so this premature euphoria, I think, is one danger. The other danger, however, um, which exists as well, probably less, but, but is, is there, is what I would call entrenched cynicism, uh, a sense that uh, this is all just a charade and that nothing can really change uh, and, uh, and that we've all got it horribly wrong. And my own view is that the truth is somewhere in between. Um, I also describe the changes that are taking place as a change of atmosphere uh, and at times a change of attitude uh, on the part of people in the government of Burma, but not yet a change of system. Uh, and I, I put up here a, as a starting point a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who says, we are not simply to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. So if we're to see true change in Burma, uh, it has to be, not just the change of atmosphere that, that we're seeing that I'll come back to describe, uh, but a real change in the system. Uh, and that particularly means a change in the constitution. And I'm not going to steal Andrew's uh, thunder on that because I know Andrew will focus on that. But that has to be absolutely central to, uh, to real change. It's worth just reminding ourselves the geographic location and indeed the geopolitical uh, strategic importance of Burma. The fact that uh, Burma is uh, at a crossroads uh, politically and, and in various ways because of the changes, but it's also at a crossroads uh, geographically uh, between uh, 
um, uh, China, uh, India, and Southeast Asia, uh, uh, crossing some of the, the most significant trading routes uh, in that part of the, the world. And that's worth uh, keeping in mind. What I thought I'd do is just take a, a few moments to, to reflect on where Burma has come from, uh, where Burma is now, and where it might be going. So um, my, my old friend, uh, um, Senior General Panshrey, uh, a few years ago I wrote a, uh, a biography uh, of him um, called Panshrey Unmasking Burma's Tyrant. Uh, and um, for some reason, he didn't seem to like it very much. Um, and, uh, but he uh, and, and the men in uniform appear to have moved into the background. But one question we might want to unpack uh, as we go through the evening is, uh, has he really retired? Have the men in uniform really retired? Or are they simply in the background? And in some cases, uh, they have actually simply changed their clothes uh, and, uh, and, and put on uh, suits. Indeed, the vast majority of the current government uh, is, it is still a military government, just in civilian suits. Uh, most ministers are uh, former generals or, or army officers. Uh, a couple of years ago, we, we saw this uh, uh, extraordinary moment where after, some months after her release from house arrest, where there appeared to be no movement at all, no change, Suddenly, in uh, August 2011, Duan Suji had this meeting with President Tain Sein. Uh, and I see that as the turning point. I don't know if uh, uh, the rest of the panel will agree, but, but I see that as very much the moment where things began to change. Um, and, and from that meeting followed uh, all the changes that I outlined uh, at the beginning. Uh, and so it's now possible to do things in Burma that were inconceivable uh, a short time ago. Um, I, I like, like many, have had the opportunity to meet her, but also to uh, bring uh, British parliamentarians who've uh, got a strong record on human rights and democracy. Uh, this, this is Lord Alton from the House of Lords, who's been a leading voice on, on these issues. Uh, he was able to come with me in March last year. Not only was he able to uh, visit Burma and, and meet Aung San Suu Kyi, but he was able to address a, a gathering that we helped to organise of uh, several hundred uh, young civil society activists, NLD uh, activists, members of the National League for Democracy, um, uh, people from different ethnic and religious uh, communities. Uh, and he gave a, a whole presentation on um, human rights, uh, the role of civil society, uh, and, and, and so on. Um, and it took place in the garden of a, a restaurant in Rangoon uh, called the House of Memories, um, which actually was once uh, Aung San's uh, office at the time of just before uh, Burma's independence. Um, and, and to be able to do something like that just would have been impossible and unimaginable uh, a couple of years ago. I've been able to uh, provide uh, training workshops uh, in various parts of Burma focused on both human rights uh, advocacy and documentation and specifically freedom of religion or belief in, in uh, in response to the crisis that I'll come on to in a, in a few moments. Um, again, something that would have been inconceivable. Indeed, two years ago, uh, I, I can say this even though, even though we are being recorded, but two years ago I was being uh, thrown out of the country. Uh, and uh, my, on my last visit to Burma last October, November, I was traveling around the country giving workshops and, and, and talks on human rights. So that's a reflection of how, how things have come. 
And it's not just in Rangoon. I think I had previously thought that these changes were confined to Rangoon. But on my last visit, I was able to go into Chin State, uh, where, uh, which had been previously uh, closed to, to foreigners and only recently opened up. Uh, and I, again, gave a, a three-day workshop uh, on human rights for uh, people from across Chin State who came to Hakka um, in, in this remote part of Burma. Um, there have also, as I'm sure you know, been the return of many high-profile exiled activists uh, who've lived in exile for many years uh, and have, uh, in quite significant numbers, gone back uh, to Burma, sometimes just to visit, some to, to live there. Um, I had the privilege of being with a, a Chin uh, exile who had not seen his family uh, since 1988, uh, and he'd lived in Canada for, for most of that time, and he uh, I went back with him to Chin State and saw him reunited with his, his family, um, something that was quite extraordinary. In fact, we were greeted by um, the local neighborhood uh, um, uh, who, who formed a, a choir to, uh, uh, to, to greet his arrival. And when you think of what has happened in Burma's very recent history, these, these changes are extraordinary. Um, in 2008, uh, this man... Uh, Paro Mansha, the leader of the uh, Karen National Union, uh, was assassinated in broad daylight, uh, we believe by, by agents of the regime. Um, I had actually been with him three days before his assassination and had sat on the, the very same veranda uh, where three days later uh, he was gunned down. Um, until the last couple of years, the really... Uh, most of my travel into Burma was uh, in this kind of way um, across the uh, borders of Burma into the jungles illegally um, to visit the, the ethnic nationalities displaced in, in the conflict zones. And I still do that to, to some extent, but in the last couple of years it's become much more possible to access some of those areas from inside, uh, and that is a change. Uh, when, I, when I have gone in, these are the kind of scenes uh, that I, I witnessed. But in reflecting on how much things have changed, it's also worth uh, putting on the table as, as one question, firstly, the fact that many human rights violations are still continuing, and I'll say more about that in a moment. But even if we get to a point where uh, some of the worst kind of abuses uh, really do uh, stop, there will be a huge challenge in Burma's transition for uh, reconciliation uh, and and trauma. Um, these are the kind of images that children that uh, we've been with in refugee camps along the Thai-Burma border have drawn. Uh, it's obviously impossible for children to uh, describe verbally the kind of horrors that they've witnessed, uh, but they draw them. And uh, it's obviously our hope that uh, the time will come where children in Burma uh, never have to draw or witness such scenes again. Um, it, it wasn't that long ago, seven years ago, that Buddhist monks uh, in Burma were being uh, gunned down in the Safan Revolution. Uh, and so I think it's worth always remembering where Burma has come from. I've talked about the positive changes of atmosphere. I've talked about where Burma has come from. I'd like to draw to a close by talking about some of the challenges that Burma uh, now face. And I think and Andrew will talk about the Constitution, and that's clearly the major, a major challenge. Um, I would like to talk about both the ethnic and religious uh, conflicts, um, because I think those pose uh, some of the greatest challenges for 
uh, a genuine uh, transition in Burma. One of the tragedies, I think, of the last two years is to see the rise of what I can only describe as uh, militant uh, Burman Buddhist nationalism. Militant Buddhism sounds like a contradiction in terms, but, but it's very real uh, in Burma. Uh, and, of course, uh, by no means all Buddhists or all, all monks. Uh, but, but it is very sad when we think of those iconic images of 2007, of the monks taking to the streets uh, in a noble cause, um, we now see scenes of monks taking to the streets uh, and, and, and preaching uh, hatred and, in some cases, uh, violence. Uh, and that's been particularly the case for the Rohingya people. Uh, I've worked with the Rohingya people for, for some years and have visited their camps, uh, refugee camps, on the Bangladesh-Burma border. Uh, and that was in 2008, when their plight was still uh, awful. Was, was awful. Um, but one can imagine how, how much more... Uh, awful it is today. Uh, they were living in desperate conditions in those camps on the Bangladesh border. They're now, as a result of uh, violence in Rakhine State uh, in June and October 2012, and indeed in, in recent months as well, uh, living in desperate conditions uh, inside Rakhine State uh, in, in camps, uh, thousands displaced and I, I think an unknown number uh, having been killed. The Rohingyas are a predominantly Muslim population. Um, and initially, when the violence first hit the Rohingyas, uh, it was the idea that there was a religious dimension to it was, was dismissed or uh, at least played down. Um, and of course, the, the situation with the Rohingyas is not just about religion, uh, it's about uh, race, it's about citizenship. Uh, the charge against them is that they're illegal immigrants from Bangladesh, whereas, in fact, the historical record shows that they have, have been in that part, part of Burma for generations. But it has taken on uh, a, a much stronger religious dimension, and it has now spread uh, to affect the wider Burmese Muslim community in other parts of the country, uh, about which there is no, no uh, doubt uh, regarding their citizenship or their history in the country. Uh, and so it is much more purely uh, a, a, an issue of religious uh, hatred with obviously a racial dimension. And so I've visited uh, Muslim communities in different parts of Burma to document what's happened uh, to them. Uh, and uh, uh, last year I visited uh, a, a village just outside Naypyidaw where uh, the community had been attacked, homes destroyed, uh, people uh, displaced. This issue of religious intolerance, I think, obviously has been particularly focused on the Muslim community, but I think it has potential to, uh, to go much wider than that. It, it isn't just an anti-Muslim campaign. It is a, an assertion of Burman uh, Buddhist uh, sentiment. And therefore, the long-term implications for uh, other religious minorities, uh, Christians particularly, who are, who are found among many of the ethnic nationalities, uh, and uh, um, indeed other Buddhists who stand up against this, this intolerant strand uh, of Buddhist nationalism, uh, I think uh, could, could come under increasing threat. Let me draw to a close um, by turning to uh, the ethnic situation, and particularly the, the one outstanding uh, conflict, which is the situation in Kachin State. Um, I've traveled to uh, different parts of Kachin State uh, many times, 
Uh, and I won't go into detail because of time. We, we can come back to it. But just to say that that conflict uh, is, is still um, far from being resolved. Um, attacks still continue. The Burma army uh, is, is still uh, carrying out uh, attacks, not on the same scale that they were a year or two ago, but still uh, uh, it, incidents are fairly regular. Uh, and I've met people who, um, this mother uh, who was... Uh, uh, in her village uh, as the Burma army attacked and she told me how she hid under her bed as uh, literally bullets flew over her bed uh, and as she heard a Burma army soldier walking around the village she heard him say to, to his men uh, if you see a Kachin just kill them. Uh, this was a church pastor who uh, was arrested and uh, severely tortured for uh, eight hours uh, simply because he was getting rice for his community. And uh, the Burma army accused him of, of working for the Kachin resistance, which he, he wasn't. This 12-year-old boy saw his mother shot dead in front of him. And again, with the Kachin conflict, uh, it's not a religious conflict. It's primarily a, an ethnic and political conflict. But there is a religious dimension, because the Kachin are predominantly Christian. Uh, and uh, churches have certainly been targeted um, these three, three women that I met last year, their husbands are all uh, in jail, uh, and they described how, uh, in all three uh, cases, their husbands had been forced to kneel on very sharp stones with their arms outstretched as if on a, a cross, uh, clearly a very uh, excruciating physical position to be in, um, but also a deliberate mockery of, of their uh, religious uh, beliefs. So... As I close, um, I want to just read some words from uh, one of the people, the man in the centre next to me, um, the Archbishop of uh, Rangoon, Archbishop Charles Bow, who has been one of the uh, most outspoken voices uh, on these issues of religious intolerance and indeed on uh, peace building in the ethnic areas. Um, he and I co-authored an article for the uh, Myanmar Times, um, I think one of the first times that I've been published inside Myanmar uh, without it being a denunciation uh, of me, um, uh, an article that we co-authored. Uh, and I just share these, uh, these words. We, we write, True peace and real freedom hinge on an issue that has yet to be addressed, respect for Myanmar's ethnic and religious diversity. Unless and until a genuine peace process is established with the ethnic nationalities, involving a nationwide political dialogue about the constitutional arrangements for the country, ceasefires will remain fragile and will not result in an end to war. A distinct but interrelated and equally urgent challenge that must be addressed is religious harmony. The violence and anti-Muslim propaganda has highlighted a deep-seated issue in Myanmar society, how to live with our deepest differences. No society can be truly democratic, free, and peaceful if it does not respect and even celebrate political, racial, and religious diversity, as well as protect the basic human rights of every single person, regardless of race, religion, or gender. Freedom of thought, conscience, religion, or belief, as detailed in Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is perhaps the most precious and most basic freedom of all. Without the freedom to choose, practice, share, and change your beliefs, there is no freedom. And later on, we, we uh, make a call. We, we call on everyone 
who has a position of influence in politics, in religion, in the media, in education, and in civil society to use their voice to speak out against religious hatred and intolerance. So the question before us today, in, in, uh, as we look towards 2015, I think is quite well put in a banner that I saw uh, hanging in a jungle hut some years ago in Karen State. Uh, a very simple question, are you for dictatorship or democracy? And the question we might explore tonight is, is the regime in Burma moving towards a genuine democracy? Even if it isn't, can a genuine democracy be achieved despite the regime? Or is the regime's agenda uh, more about softening its image as a dictatorship and turning into uh, a slightly more acceptable dictatorship, uh, uh, leaving the ranks of North Korea and uh, Zimbabwe and moving perhaps into the ranks of, uh, of China and Vietnam uh, and dictatorships that uh, we, we, we have relatively normal uh, relations with. Um, I, I concluded a, a recent article um, with these words, that the most optimistic take I can put on, on this is that the beginning of the beginning may have begun. <laughs> and so with that thought, I'll stop there and look forward to coming back to these questions in a time of discussion. Um, thanks very much for your knowledge and insight. Um, we will definitely get back to you in the Q&A sessions. And now I'd, I'd like to hand over to you, Andrew. And I have to say, um, since OB was founded, we've been looking for someone who can really touch on, on the constitution and law in Burma. And now I'm so glad that you are here at, at the very Oxford. And, um, and it has been the most um, in, um, controversial issues back in home. And when, when I saw the book right in front of you, that really reminded me the first time in 2008 when they published that book, and we have no idea what is written inside. So um, would you care to share with us your experience and your expertise while working with those involved in this Constitutional Reform Committee? Well, thank you very much, Pang, for that very kind introduction and for the opportunity to be here on, on this panel. Um, the point that you raise about this book um, is, is interesting. It's become as much a, an emblem, um, a slogan, an, a, a visual slogan as, as anything else. For most people in Myanmar, Burma, it represents a constitution that was foisted on people rather than one that represents a democratic process. Uh, and it's made this current process of constitutional reform even more difficult that it has that, that symbolism. But um, we have the sense of constitutional law in Burma as being a very sort of recent phenomenon, something that really only dates back maybe 18 months, maybe two years, that it becomes the real focus of the discourse on Burma. Um, to understand where the current debate lies, you need to look back decades rather than just simply the last couple of years. Um, in fact, one could say that you need to start to look at the 1930s with the beginning of an independent form of Burma that is separated from uh, colonial administration in India. Um, and then the, the first independent constitution that existed in 47, um, and then the constitutional developments that followed that, to really understand the strands of where this document comes from and where people are seeking to change it. Um, the current phase of reform, I think, is probably best dated to the beginning of, of the, the 1990s or the late 
um, 80s with the convening of a national convention to consider changes to the Constitution. Um, that process is intricate, elaborate, and, and rather internecine, and we don't have time to go into all the details from that. But, but nonetheless, it's a process that has left a great deal of wounds in the idea of constitutional reform and deliberation. Uh, this constitution was said when it was adopted in 2008. I say adopted in a loose sense of the word. Um, there was a, a referendum in 2008, around the, the time of Cyclone Nagdus, uh, that resulted in about 99% of the population supposedly voting in favour of the constitution. I'm not aware of any democracy that has 99% votes. North Korea. Um, well, <laughs> true, true. Yes, that's true. And Cuba. Kim Jong-un. But, but nonetheless, this was the point at which it was adopted. It wasn't until 2010, though, that it, become, it comes into force, which is perhaps why we date really only the last two years as the, the beginning of real, a really strong constitutional discourse. Um, the, the current phase of reform begins with the election of Aung San Suu Kyi and her fellow NLD members in April 2012. Uh, that triggered a number of developments within the regime itself. So very soon after that election, uh, the Union Solidarity and Development Party formed its own Constitution Review Committee. In part, that was because a core aspect of NLD's manifesto from the 1980s, from its formation in the 1980s onwards, has been constitutional change. Uh, without necessarily identifying specifics, the constitutional change was going to be on the agenda. And USDP, I think, was very much aware of this and concerned that it needed to be equipped for it. Um, in, it took until June, July of 2013 for that process that had been going on within the regime to then spread outside the regime. And in August 2013, we see the formation of the Constitution Review Joint Committee, body of 109 parliamentarians. The composition of the committee is, was determined based on representation in Parliament. Parliament is approximately 75% or, or a little bit more controlled by USDP, the ruling party, and, and the military regime. And so within the 109 members of that committee, 25% of them were drawn from the military, about 50% from USDP, 6% or so from NLD, and the remainder from the other democratic and ethnic nationalities groups that are represented in Parliament. Um, the, the sense with which that body was formed was, was rather mixed. On the one hand, there was a great deal of scepticism about whether this was simply a show, a wind piece of window dressing, to, um, I guess, smother the discourse on all, all the claims, the, the requirements for constitutional reform. Um, but in October of 2013, a call was put out by the committee for submissions from the public. And in many ways, this call was commendable. Um, it didn't narrow the focus of the submissions. It didn't require there to be a particular focus of what people were asked to comment to the, to the committee. Um, it was made very clear in both the call and in media uh, present, uh, appearances that were done by the secretary to, to the committee that any particular changes or support for the current constitution should be articulated in writing to the committee. And um, the committee received over 28,000 individual letters um, from members of the public. Um, that amounted, according to the committee, to about 330,000 individual suggestions for either changes or retentions or additions or, or, or other things. <clears throat> 
the committee itself had, I think, um, five parliamentary staffers who were assisting it, in addition to the 109 members. Um, the 109 members split up into five groups, and they were each given a portion of the Constitution to consider. As I understand it from my conversations, and I should say, none of this is, has been made official or public by anybody involved in the process. Um, not necessarily, I think, because they seek to hide it, but simply because they don't see it as that important to explain the process that, that has been gone through in this constitutional reform agenda. But the committee split into five groups that considered about four chapters of the Constitution each. Precisely how they divided those groups up is not clear. Um, it also defies logic in some, shape, in, in some instances. So, for instance, um, the, there are schedules in the Constitution that set out legislative powers that should be exercised by the central government and those that should be exercised by the subnational government. One committee was given that. The other committee was given the chapter that concerns the legislature. Um, as far as I'm aware, there was no interaction between the various subcommittees in the way that they did it, or comparison of the suggestions that they were receiving. The committee's role um, ended up being uh, far less of a substantive one than many had come to think after the call for submissions in October, um, where many, including, as I understand it, those within NLD, believed the review committee, when it reported at the end of January this year, would provide recommendations, uh, a roadmap for how changes will happen between now and national elections in 2015. Um, in fact, the committee provided a very high-level summary of the submissions that it had received, um, and only two vaguely worded recommendations. Those recommendations were, were twofold, and I'll come back to consider them in more detail, but um, the first was that the concerns of ethnic nationality should be prioritised. They should receive the immediate attention of any further constitutional process. And the second uh, was that those provisions that didn't require a referendum, um, that could be changed by the parliament acting by itself, should receive the first attention. Um, it was then left to Parliament to decide how it would take up the mantle of constitutional reform. And very quickly, um, and I think in, a, in a, a move that had been probably discussed for a long time prior to the reporting of the committee, a new committee was established, this time with about a third of the number of members. The so-called Implementation Committee um, has is drawn, again, from parliamentarians. Uh, its makeup is exactly representative of the current makeup of Parliament, as the Review Committee is. So 75% of the 31 members are USDP or military, and only about 6% are, um, are NLD, which I think amounts to about two, two or three representatives. Um, and then the remainder are taken by sort of uh, Democrats or ethnic groups. Um, that committee has no end date, and it will exist as long as Shui Man, the Speaker, wants it to exist. Uh, it's given authority to draft amendments to the Constitution and to put them to Parliament at the end of its term. It's also given authority to consult with a range of different stakeholders, the ability to draw on chief ministers from states and regions, to draw on some of the ethnic nationalities uh, ministers, to draw on legal experts and any institution of government it sees fit. But it's not given a mandate as to where it should focus its efforts, and the highest we can say that its role has been defined is to implement a report that has only two recommendations in it. Nonetheless, it's, it's fairly clear from 
the broader discourse outside of that, that committee that there are really four issues that um, are at the top of the agenda for constitutional reform. The first and, and the one that we're all very familiar with is presidential qualifications. Um, all the focus in, in Western media is on what's known as Section 59F, which uh, places restrictions, a prohibition, on a candidate for the presidency or the vice presidency from having um, a spouse who was born, who, who was entitled <coughs> to citizenship, um, having children who are entitled to citizenship, so not merely having taken it up but being entitled to it, um, having a child whose spouse is entitled to um, foreign citizenship. And as far as my research can, has shown so far, there is no provision anywhere in any other constitution currently existing that places such prohibitions on a candidate's extended relations. It's not unusual for there to be restrictions on a spouse, but it's rather unusual for it to be restrictions on a child or a child's spouse. Um, there are other issues, though, within Section 59, specifying um, the qualifications, that are of concern to those within the country. The first, and this is principally the concern of the National League for Democracy, um, is contained within Section 59D. And that requires a candidate to be well acquainted with the affairs of the union, including economic, military, and other affairs. The concern within the National League for Democracy is that this is a euphemism for you must be a former general to become president. Um, and it's framed in a way that would be broad enough to be interpreted in that way, um, but also to be interpreted in a way that, you know, if one reads the papers in Burma, you have enough acquaintance to become president. The, bigger, the, the biggest concern with that provision is not so much that it exists. There are other provisions like it in other constitutions around the world that require acquaintance or certain experience. It's how that provision will be enforced. There are two stages to enforcement of the, the presidential qualifications. The first is that um, the two speakers of each house will consider candidates who have been put forward for the presidency or vice presidency as to whether they meet the qualifications. Um, as currently stands, that would be uh, Thura Ushwe Man and Ukina Mint, both former generals themselves. Um, and their interpretation is not explicitly made subject to review. The only body that has um, power with respect to electoral, electoral disputes is the Union Electoral Commission, which is an executive body also appointed by the regime. And the most recent set of appointments has come completely from the ranks of middle-ranking middle officers. There may, though, be a jurisdictional dispute um, were this concern to, to, to come up, because the Constitutional Tribunal um, has authority to decide any matter arising on the Constitution. The matter that we, regarding the qualifications, is both an electoral matter, coming within the purview of the Union Electoral Commission, and a matter arising under the Constitution. Um, now, a smart Constitution lawyer in Burma would probably say, in fact, that there's an anterior question, and that is, who has the authority to decide whether this is a constitutional question or an electoral question. Um, and I think if someone were to raise that argument, and that would certainly fall within the purview of the Constitutional Tribunal, um, that body is more likely than the Union Electoral Commission to decide in an impartial manner. But their, um, the, the, way, the, the point at which this matter will be decided 
will be before a new, a new selection of constitutional tribunal members are appointed. So in effect, they will be um, in their positions only until a new president is appointed. And then they'll lose their positions, and if they want reappointment, presumably it will be of some concern how they decide this matter. So the issue with this um, well-acquainted provision is more to do with its adjudication rather than its existence. Um, the final one, and, and this applies as much to parliamentarians as it does to, to presidents, is that there is a very high residency requirement for the president. Um, the president, a candidate for the presidency must be, um, have resided in Burma for continuously for 20 years, which instantly excludes any of those who have worked on the borders, those who may have been involved in ethnic conflicts, um, and those members of the diaspora who fled in the 1980s or 1990s and wished to come back having, um, having extensive experience and useful skills to share. Uh, this is perhaps more of a concern for uh, parliamentarians who have to have continu continuously resided within Burma for 10 years, um, which means that in the elections that will come up in 2015, a large swathe of those who are interested in the future of Burma will not be able to stand for election. The presidential qualification is therefore the, the first issue. Um, the, the second issue concerns state and regional autonomy. Um, this is loosely referred to as federalism, um, and the debate is rather confused. Some people say Burma needs to adopt a federal system. Uh, others say that it just needs greater autonomy. Um, from a constitutional perspective, it's fairly clear that the constitution establishes a federal system already. Um, it has a central government. It has subnational units that have their own spheres of authority. The issue is that the spheres of authority of the subnational units are fairly limited. Um, these bodies are headed by a chief minister who is directly appointed by the president. Um, their parliaments are, like the central parliament, um, have 25% military representation and are almost entirely controlled by USDP members. Um, in addition, the matters on, on which they can legislate or exercise executive power are very much constrained. So um, the, the key issues for those who are seeking reform of these provisions, which are principally ethnic nationalities outside the, the, the central regions, um, is to have the ability to directly elect a chief minister of their own choosing rather than have someone appointed, and to have greater control of the revenue streams that derive from their country, from, from their, their regional state themselves. Um, this is a particular concern for, for things like the jade and the ruby trade, um, and of, of course, forestry. And all of the, 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 the difficulty with, with um, this change is that the military controls most of these resources at the moment and will be reluctant to hand over control over its regulation to a body that may not be within the control of, of USDP. The final two issues of, of constitutional reform uh, relate to, are interrelated. One is military representation. Um, the constitutional reform effort has mostly been directed to the central government, but the same concerns and issues will probably arise with respect to state and subnational uh, governments. And the second, the, the final issue is the constitutional amendment procedure itself. For all the most important provisions within the constitution, um, a two-step process is required. The first is that parliament must deliberate itself and over 75% of parliamentarians must vote in favour of changing the constitution. It then goes to a referendum of the whole country, um, and over 50% of the country must vote in favour of, of that change. 
The reason why those last two issues are connected, of course, is that uh, the military holding 25% of parliament currently has a veto any constitutional change. And so there are two ways that the issue of military control of parliament might be addressed. One is to reduce the proportion of the military in parliament and thereby remove their veto of the constitutional provisions. The other is to alter the mechanism by which the constitution changes so that it's not a 75% uh, limit. It may be slightly less so the military loses its veto or some other mechanism that takes account of ethnic representation, democratic representation, USDP and military representation within, within the parliament. Um, how these issues are resolved um, is, r remains ambiguous and subject to, to a great deal of change. We have more than 18 months before national elections will be held. It's likely that any referendum will be held at the same time. And a lot can change in that time. Um, if we are to take the assumption, which is an assumption I'll come back to question, that the Implementation Committee will be in charge of this process and will seek to implement um, the findings of the Review Committee, it's worth understanding what the Review Committee actually found. Um, now, the, the, an, an analysis um, of the Review Committee's 28,000 submissions, or 330,000 suggestions, 28,000 um, submissions, uh, indicates that there are a number of chapters that receive more attention than others. Um, I've excluded here Chapter 1, which sets out the basic principles for the, uh, the, the, the Constitution settles, which attracted 63% of all submissions to the Constitution. I've excluded it because the Constitution makes explicit um, uh, requirement that those principles have no substantive effect in legal proceedings, in legislation. You can't challenge a piece of legislation on the basis that a breach is one of the basic principles. Um, and also because most of the submissions directed to that, from what I understand, were fairly polemical um, and not necessarily particularly considered as to where they were seeking to direct it. They, they were allocated to Chapter 1 if somebody said they had a particular view about how the state of Burma should look. What, what this shows is that um, three chapters really attract most of the, um, the attention of, of the public. Um, chapter 3, which relates to the presidential qualifications. Uh, chapter 5, which relates to um, the, the, the role of the military and Chapter 12, which relates to constitutional amendment procedures. Um, now, if we're to question the assumption that the committee makes, which is that the Parliament and the Parliamentary Committee should focus on those provisions that don't require referendum, um, they appear to suggest that that's the that was the basis upon which they'd received submissions. But it's fairly clear that most of the submissions that they received were directed to provisions that required a referendum. Of course, that would make sense. The most important ones, the most controversial ones are those that do require referendum. Um, but also interestingly, uh, and the, the, the highest level of granularity that we get about the, the, the committee's findings, um, is when it analyses those provisions requiring a referendum and those that don't. These three provisions, or these three sets of provisions, the first concerns presidential qualifications, the second concerns military representation specifically in Parliament, so the, the guarantee of 25%. And the final is um, the constitutional amendment procedure. And it, it's fairly clear from here that you have an enormous proportion of those who've submitted to the committee um, wanting some form of substantive change to it, over 90% in all three of those cases. Um, if, if, the, if the implementation committee is actually to go about its task as it's set to do, it, it seems it, it's behoved to, to carry those into effect. Um, but of course... It's unlikely that this committee 
will in fact have any substantive role in the process. Um, what's more likely is for there to be quadripartite negotiations between Duang Sang Suu Kyi, um, the senior general in charge of the Tamador, the, um, the armed services, Speaker Thurul Shui Man, and President Then Sein. And some arrangement is most likely to be um, developed that will focus on each of those four aspects. Um, where things stand at the moment, it's unlikely for the presidential qualifications to be altered. Um, the highest that support from within the regime has come is to require Duong Sang Suu Kyi uh, as children to renounce their foreign citizenship and to take Burmese citizenship. Um, now, in the, the citizenship law in Burma um, stipulates that no one can hold dual citizenship. And Durang Sang Suu Kyi has come out very strongly um, in favour of there being a prohibition against dual nationality. That means that um, an easy way to get around the constitutional prohibition, which might be to allow dual nationality and therefore allow her sons to take Burmese citizenship, um, is both difficult politically, but almost entirely um, impossible for Duang Sang Suu Kyi if she's to maintain her credibility on the issue of citizenship. Um, the military is unlikely to be as far ahead as USDP on this. They're unlikely even to be um, considering approving a change to the presidential qualifications at the moment. Um, so if the question were held now, it's unlikely that she would be able to um, run for president. On the issue of, uh, of state and regional autonomy, this is most likely to have some movement. Um, USDP has already agreed that it will allow direct, uh, uh, direct elections of chief ministers um, and has indicated quite strongly that there will be some form of resource sharing between the central government and the um, sub-national governments. Um, on the case of military representation in the constitutional amendment procedure, um, the military is not going to be removed from parliament uh, in the next five years. What's most likely is that they will have a staged reduction in the proportion of the military in Parliament. Um, and the, 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 the step that this might look like is to reduce it to about 20% initially. Now, that's what those within USDP are saying they, could, they feel that they could sell to the military. Uh, and that will resolve, to some degree, the constitutional amendment issue. But there are a number of, of risks associated with this approach. The first is that um, there's a clear lack of any direct connection between the constitutional reform process and the peace process. The peace process is under the authority of the president and directly organised by uh, the peace minister, Huang Min. Um, although the current implementation committee gives a role for some ethnic nationalities ministers and chief ministers to have some advice within it, um, what's negotiated with the um, 12 to 16 ethnic nationalities groups that are currently in ceasefire negotiations and how that's filtered to the constitutional reform process is entirely unclear. Um, and how one minister can represent the voice of a multitude of interests has not yet really been resolved. Uh, this is more of a risk than it might appear on, on the surface. Most ethnic nationalities groups feel that this is their one and only chance at getting constitutional reform. In fact, one of the ethnic MPs said to me when I was in Burma in January, that you English have this saying, opportunity only knocks once. Um, and they feel that unless they take this chance now, they will forever um, 
be subjugated to the interests of the Burman majority and the central government. Um, it seems clear to me that there's likely to be greater civil unrest from within these armed ethnic groups if they don't see some movement, at least this year, and some road, road map to reform going forward. Uh, the, the second risk is that um, this reform process is seen as a one-off um, process, that we deal with it between now and 2015, we have a referendum at the end of 2015, and that's it for constitutional reform. We can focus on now on something that matters. Um, this is characteristic of many countries in transition. We've seen that in most recently in Zimbabwe, uh, where the West effectively required a very quick constitutional reform process that in fact resulted in a constitution that entrenched Robert Mugabe um, and ZANU-PF in a way that nobody in the West really had wanted. He now has the ability to change the constitution at will. He has more powers um, as president than he had for the previous five years. And the one position of authority in government that could be occupied by an opposition leader, the prime minister, has been removed. There's a risk that this might happen in Burma as well if the constitutional reform process is not supported adequately. Um, there's a risk that those within the country become fatigued at this constant discussion of constitutional change uh, and that the interest of international donors wanes as well. Um, the issue here is convincing all those stakeholders concerned to agree to a roadmap that looks past 2015, that stops looking at 2015 as this key um, milestone and that starts thinking about a process rather than substantive outcomes. And the final concern, I think this is perhaps one of the, the, the most important, is that this exercise is now seen as simply a technical one. Um, the fact that all these figures have been released and that we can do nice graphs of it, and the fact that the committee sees itself as looking at individual provisions one at a time and altering it in some way, uh, is clear evidence that most of those within the regime, and even those within NLD to some degree, see this as just tinkering around the edges a little bit to then facilitate a broader process or broader changes in democracy, in health, in education, um, and in social society more broadly. But seeing this as, as a mechanism by which to engage in a, almost a process of reconciliation, um, a process that brings together the body politic of Burma is fairly critical for any constitutional change to be enduring. Uh, and not much attention is yet focused on changing the attitudes of those who are in control of the process, but also those who are champing at the bit for reform. Um, the, the wild card in the, the immediate term uh, is the census, which starts on the, the 30th of March and is likely to inflame ethnic tensions um, across the country. Uh, that is likely to put any, any consistent process of constitutional reform significantly off track. Um, but for, for what it looks like in 2015 and beyond, we really can only wait and see. Um, thanks very much, Andrew, for your um, keen insight and your kind, generous thoughts on this. Um, the way forward for Burma uh, is clearly trapped with a lot of challenges ahead. Um, so I'd like to um, hand over to you, Havena. You've, you're currently working on a country where you grew up. And that, to me, was the most um, interesting um, contribution 
um, that I was expecting from you. Because when you talked about the power relation from um, President Cabinet and the military, current military, you seem to have a understanding of how Burmese um, attitude towards these people. So now I'd like you to share with us all and give us a um, projection towards 2015 and beyond and how the elite politicals will shape our country future. Thanks, so. Um, thanks very much, and I'm very honoured to be here amongst uh, all these esteemed uh, uh, guests and, and speakers and moderators. Um, I, I am by far not as uh, known uh, uh, on, on Burma as, as anyone else here on this table, really, but I do have the privilege of covering um, uh, Burma as uh, part of the uh, Mekong subregion uh, for Oxford and Litka. And as Feng so said, I, I had the privilege again of growing up in a golden cage. Uh, it could have been far worse for me, uh, but, but very much in the international community, uh, which it was very small back then. It's grown a lot um, in, the, in the 2000s. Um, I left, left the country in 2006. I, I finished my high school there, continued my university studies, and it's been a, a, a passion throughout uh, to return to the country, both per personally and, and professionally. Um, I think that, that the two previous presentations have been very good in terms of uh, setting the scenery. I'm going to play a more dangerous game and, and make some <laughs> predictions as to what could transpire uh, in a lead-up to and following 2015. Um, it's terrible that this is on record because I'm, I'm sure that it will obviously uh, almost not uh, take place, but at least as a thought exercise, as a scenario analysis, um, it could be, could be rather interesting and hopefully provoke some good discussion as well. Um, the first thing is, the, what strikes me and, and, and particularly came across uh, with the two presentations is the disconnect between uh, politics and the very sort of sanitary discussion about the constitution and, and what to amend first. Um, at the center in Yipidor, where everything looks pristine and the lawns are set, it's almost like an opening to, to Twin Peaks or something, you know, where everything is perfect except you scratch the surface and, and it's not quite what it seems. Versus reality on the ground, uh, what we, you know, the more disturbing images of, uh, of, of things which have really exacerbated actually uh, since 2011. Uh, it's not just that they've remained the same, they've actually worsened in, in many cases, um, both in terms of uh, violence with non-state armed groups. I think a status quo uh, equilibrium which we saw under Kenyans was very much ruptured by the transition and put into question. Um, resulting in, in actually more fighting rather than less and, and the, and the uh, disruption of ceasefires. Uh, but also in terms of the, the, what you call militant Buddhism, so ethno-Buddhist ethno nationalism, um, has really uh, uh, taken a turn for the worse. Um, uh, so on many levels we're seeing an apparent disconnect between the, the beautiful story uh, and, and, and what is actually taking place and, and, and has worsened. And I think 2015, I would agree, is not going to be a miracle cure. That's the, that's the first thing. Um, and in fact, it's been rather counterproductive to, to, by many people in the international community and as well the government um, to see 2015 as a goalpost, as a benchmark by which everything must be achieved. Um, and uh, the, the, you know, firstly, in terms of the, the national ceasefire, I mean, we may or may not see a national ceasefire. I don't think we will necessarily because the uh, KIO are, are playing it smart. But even if we do, this will be on paper only. Um, there are lots of, again, what you see on paper, what the legal document might be able to tell you, 
is not necessarily with you know what takes place um, on on the ground. So so this this juncture is 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 there is apparent and also plays itself in terms of the parliament because in many ways the parliament uh, uh, the parliamentary period 2010 to 2015 um, has been rather superficial as as we know it, it came out of uh, largely out of out of the elections um, and then there was a by election in April April uh, 2012 which coincidentally many people started discussing as, uh, as, as the day that, that Burma became a democracy, which it certainly wasn't. And I'm sure in 2015 we'll also say, or there will be commentators saying, uh, now uh, we've got all this resolved, it's a democracy, or at least as perfect or imperfect a democracy as you can reach in Southeast Asia, the game goes on. Um, but in a way, I'm, I, what worries me is that the, the sort of consensus-oriented approach um, the lack of uh, uh, real uh, party policy platforms, um, the, the lack of representation as well between the parliamentarians and, and constituents um, will be challenged in 2015 if we see more free and fair election um, in the sense that things will be more combative than they have been previously. The situation today is, is uh, as a result of the leading players playing within the red lines, within you know the only game in town essentially. Um, um, but in 2015 and, and in the lead up to 2015, we could see those red lines being questioned, and a more combative style of politics comes to the fore, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. This could be you know, part of democratization. But um, the whole point of Ushweiman's or, or through Ushweiman's. Uh, uh, exercise as Speaker of the Lower House and then Union Assembly has been to prove that the Parliament and politics and civilian politics in Burma is now different to what took place in the 1950s when there was a huge skepticism of civilian politicians. They were seen as far too combative, self-interested, and this was the rationale for the military to have stepped in in the first place. So, but it's a delusion. It's, it's not, it's, this isn't real politics. And in 2015, you may see a reassertion of real politics, if not in Parliament, and certainly outside of, uh, outside of uh, Parliament. So I'll return to that in, in a moment. Um, in terms of the, the deeper realities, I think it's quite clear that the Constitution by design, but also in terms of the personality politics, um, has meant that there's been a huge discrepancy or that there's a huge gap between the executive and the Parliament. To the point that you almost see two governments, or at least Parliament envisages, envisages, envisages itself as a parallel government uh, to the executive, and you've seen Tain Sein and his kitchen cabinet increasingly isolated. Now, partly I say by design because the constitution says that you can't be involved in any party political affairs um, if you are uh, part of the executive. So Tain Sein and, and, and some of his key allies, uh, including Ong Min and, and So Tain, had to resign from the USDP. Uh, Tain Sein, uh, President Tain Sein tried to cling on to uh, the chairmanship, but that didn't work. Um, and I see him uh, increasingly isolated from the, uh, the, the ruling USDP and, and Shrey Man taking over the reins. So that's one thing that we can be reasonably certain uh, will shape the picture in 2015 and beyond, in the sense that we will see the, 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 we're likely to see the disappearance of some of the main players in terms of who we bill as reformers and some of the main players in terms of the interlocutors with the international community and the interlocutors with the ethnic groups. So suddenly, what happens after Wang Min disappears from the picture? What, what is left of the peace process? So what is left with, with all the openings you've made uh, and all the progress you've made? Which underlines the point is that actually things are very 
personalized in, in Myanmar. Um, they're not institutionalized, and that's another worry for 2015. Um, things are uh, uh, revolve around certain personalities. In USDP, that's Shrey Mun. It's very clear that he has laid out his agenda for, for, for wanting to become president, or at least assert some reins of power in 2015. Um, his true ambitions are, are, are always a bit unclear, but, but you can assume that he will want to be there in the picture and in power uh, post-2015. But, but equally, for, for the National League for Democracy, um, things revolve around the figure of Dong San Suu Kyi. Uh, and that's been an issue for them. And now partly that's, that's simply to do with history, because they, they were quite a um, grassroots party originally. But after their, uh, essentially, after the crackdown um, and the, the refusal to recognize the sort of de facto results in 1990, um, you saw the National League for Democracy essentially uh, uh, crumble and um, and really ossify um, amongst a, a few you know core group of people who were put, put into uh, house arrest or or worse I mean uh, an, an insane prison and elsewhere. Um, these same people are are. Um, uh, not necessarily the people who you might need for building white policy papers on uh, the economy, on how to build, uh, uh, you know, the sort of things that foreign investors would be worried about. But even, you know, if you think about, you know, where does the NLD stand on counter-narcotics? So where does it stand really on, on non-state armed groups? I mean, there, it's clear that the policy platform has been to change the constitution and uh, the rule of law, or the yeah, rule of law, law and order. Uh, but the law and order, again, is, 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 is an ambiguous thing in this context because it takes on very, um, or can take on many political um, interpretations. Um, I find it actually as a very convenient excuse by both uh, uh, Sein and, and to a certain extent uh, Dasu uh, to say, well, you know, uh, you know, we've got rights, Let's. the solution is law and order, because you're not looking at any of the underlying uh, uh, um, setup. And it's a quick way of saying we'll resolve this by, by more law and order. Now, law and order also has a huge uh, historical luggage coming from a military regime, because they justify themselves in terms of law and order. Uh, but that wasn't necessarily the received message on the part of the, the population. Um, so... Personality politics, we haven't seen the formation of a clear uh, uh, party agenda on, on, on both sides. And this rather superficial, rather shallow consensus, which has dominated, which has been very beneficial and, and has been you know, radical. I mean, it's, it's new. I, I, don't want, I don't mean to suggest that there's been no change whatsoever. I think there's been lots of change. But given all that, and given the euphoria of 2011-2012, I think what we're now seeing is, is actually more of a situation of, of paralysis. And no one really knows what will happen after 2015. And there is no clear game plan, there's no roadmap um, uh, post-2015. And that can actually be quite uh, dangerous. So rather than, than, than uh, highlighting 2015 as the ultimate uh, achievement, as the miracle cure, and afterwards everything will be fine, uh, I think it's all up to the, 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 the political players to acknowledge that actually um, you're in trouble. There may be a sort of a train collision in terms of elite politics meeting politics from below. Um, and that you need some sort of plan in terms of the constitution. I mean, I agree with Andrew that I don't think, I think the window of opportunity to have changed radically the constitution has already disappeared. It may be that there might be a referendum uh, with the election. 
Um, but in terms of uh, a complete revamp of the constitution, that will require far more time and will require, I mean, uh, years, if not decades, I mean, to pull out something like in Indonesia where, where um, um, uh, the, the militia was able to sort of uh, really decide to pull out of the equation uh, will take decades. There's, there's no way around it. Um, and in that sense, and ironically, the constitution is actually more honest in acknowledging that the military is a de facto uh, uh, player on, on, on the scene than, say, Thailand, where, where you see a constitution that's very much more of a, a paper, uh, paper democracy, um, but that where military uh, uh, can still intervene and does intervene and is often the, the decider in terms of who wins or who doesn't win the next coup d'etat. Um, that also forces them to play within the rules because these are the rules which they've shaped. And, and in a sense, they also curtail their, you know, the realm of possibilities. So I don't think that the uh, military will necessarily intervene, but what they can do post-2015, uh, if, if there is this narrative of civilian politicians not being able to get along, not forming a, a clear and concise roadmap post-2015, if politics from below or, or the, these mass movements uh, 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 start being seen as going out of control, then you may actually see uh, the commander-in-chief of the Tatmadaw, Minong Hlaing, post himself as a presidential candidate. And that would be sort of a twist. Um, I'm not saying this is to happen. I know we're on record, so <laughs> let's not. Um, but I'm saying that it's not beyond reason, and it's certainly the way that they envisage themselves as being the custodians of, of law and order, of stability, of the constitution, um, that, uh, and, and being one of the three electoral colleges, it is within the right to do that, and they will certainly get to vice president level, because regardless of, of, of uh, who gets what, if you're one of the electoral colleges, you nominate one of the three positions, there's one president and two vice presidents, the military is guaranteed to have another military man or, or retired military man, I say military man because there's no military woman, um, as vice president at the very least. Um, what is the USDP doing about this? I mean, how are they uh, uh, approaching 2015? And this is quite an interesting question because they're not necessarily um, a, a unified bunch of people either. Um, and, and I see them oscillating between, between populism, uh, trying to cater in particular to the 70% to uh, uh, agrarian uh, uh, sort of classes of, of Burma, particularly in the lowlands that are ethnic Burman, and on the other hand, they're also clearly interested in a more sort of pro-business agenda. When I mean pro-business, it's a very narrow agenda, um, uh, which is composed largely of tycoons, and, and agribusiness is very big among them, uh, amongst, amongst that sort of line of, 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 of business. Um, but we've seen contrasting laws. So we've, we saw the farmland law and the, the vacant fallow virgin land law. Um, which essentially is, is um, I mean, if you read E.P. Thompson, it, 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 it's, it's, it's uh, what it was meant to have done, is essentially uh, to reclaim uh, a virgin land or land that was underused and to put it to good use. And this fits in with the sort of developmental model of let's get massive plantations going, um, let agriculture be the heart of the economy. But there's a different, I mean, that clashes with, with subsistence farming and particularly subsistence farmers who are rotational farmers and who practice slash and burn. Um, and, and particularly in a system where there's no uh, tenure security, that, that can be a huge issue. So what we've seen actually is, is, is a lot of uh, 
forced displacement. And again, one of the issues which has ex been exacerbated post-2011 is land grabs or, or, or attempted land grabs, uh, more so than, than when I was living in the country in the 2000s. So uh, there you're seeing things uh, uh, um, you know, move very quickly in, in favor of big business, uh, which could hurt uh, farmers. On the other hand, farmers, uh, if the USDP wants to win in a free and fair manner, is exactly who they have to woo if they want to retain some degree of, uh, of power. Um, so then they, they went for the Enhancing Economic Welfare Farmers Law, um, and they went for rice schemes where they sought to try to uh, guarantee uh, price fixes, which was, I mean, again, it's almost sort of resorting to Nguyen socialism. It didn't, it just wasn't uh, possible. Um, but it shows to me that they're actually not very sure about where they stand either, and that there are different constituencies, different interest groups involved, and that again, uh, it, this revolves more about personality politics. You're seeing Shreeman and Tehu uh, uh, take the center stage here. Um, now, this all leads to the question of you know, whether, and this is the often asked question, you know, whether Dosuchi walked into a trap. Um, I think it's really half glass full, half glass empty uh, uh, a way of approaching the problem. The first thing is, is, is it was the only game in town. Um, there was no other game, and there hadn't been for a while. So you may as well play ball, even if the games, uh, the rules of the game are set uh, by someone else and are in your disadvantage. I, I, I personally don't think, uh, from my observations, that it is a trap, because I think she still stands to, and the NLD still stands to become uh, the uh, kingmaker uh, post-2015, regardless of constitutional review outcomes. Um, I think that, um, I mean, again, I mean, I, there was, a, there was an, an interesting article in The Independent by, by Peter Popham, um, and, uh, oh, I, <laughs> um, who, which cited Ukoni, uh, a civil lawyer uh, who works on sort of commercial arbitration and, and now increasingly as well advising the National League for Democracy. And he was citing figures that say, um, you know, USDP could grab as far as, as much as 15%. They, 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 they uh, are very cash rich. Uh, there, there were some ambiguous dealings with the Chinese government in terms of uh, loans for for agriculture, which which must be related to to election tactics. I think. I mean, it's never been explicit, explicitly mentioned. Um, and it's clear that they still have sway. They still have patronage. Let's not remember. I mean, let's not forget that in the uh, 19, in the yeah that the USDA was set up in 1993, um, and at, at its height in 2000, uh, claimed. Uh, I mean. Uh, something like 40% of the population uh, as membership. Um, now, obviously, that's grossly grossly overstated, but you can assume that there is still a, a patronage network which exists there, which is still influential, which can still be mobilized. So I don't think they're a done force. On the other hand, uh, and, it's, and it's very clear that with a 25% uh, 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 representation in parliament, the, the military will retain uh, a, a significant veto power over everything else. But I, th I still think that the National League of Democracy can come out as the uh, dominant faction in the parliament. Um, and that still means something. Uh, in any European uh, democracy which relies on coalition building, the dominant party uh, doesn't have to, you know, doesn't need or is not expected to, to go beyond the 50% majority. But it is still recognized as being the dominant party and, and still recognized as the winners of an election. And that carries weight. Um, on top of that, NAPIDAR requires the National League of Democracy to participate in 2015 because otherwise it, 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 there's no legitimacy. Um, 
So, so I think that they do have some strong cards. I mean, obviously the the the, the game is 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 played in the disadvantage, but in the long term, I think things look better for them. Um, I'm just having a look at, at some of my uh, my notes, and it, you know the one the one issue again, and this deals with the, 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 this juncture between elite politics and and what's happening from below, is that. Uh, increasingly, uh, Dalsu was was being depicted as 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 being very aloof and and actually quite self interested in 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 and that was actually probably uh, worked well in the hands of of uh, the regime in the sense that uh, here was this lady who just seemed to be so intent on uh, uh, on promoting her own agenda of becoming president as 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 the only thing which mattered in the country. And what we've seen in the last few weeks, actually, is, is a reconsolidation towards uh, other pro-democracy groups, uh, the ATA Generation Group in particular, so Coco G and, and Minko 9, uh, have agreed to work with, with uh, Dosu on um, uh, reforming Chapter 12. So again, de-emphasizing um, the presidential uh, criteria and, and, and going for a, a more general agenda of uh, reforming constitutional amendment procedures which I think is not a bad idea because again it, you you can you can relaunch the discussion as less of a of a sort of one lady sort of agenda and and more to do with the welfare of, of the country um, but you're still left with all these issues from below which are not being particularly addressed and that's that's a huge issue that we i mean that we are often in the international community uh hesitant to address because we think it's complicated because this is a fragile transition. And we don't want to criticize uh, people who we formerly regarded as, as or, or still regard as, as moral authorities. Um, on the other hand, it is clear these issues aren't going away and, and, and they are broadening in scope. So what you saw in, in the Rakhine state was something which was anti-Rohingya initially or was depicted as being anti-Rohingya, which was sad but nothing new because the Rohingya have always been a persecuted minority. Uh, to something which is broader and, and more anti-Muslim. And now, now what you see is Uber 2 and the 969 movement starting to talk about um, uh, uh, sort of interracial marriages and interreligious marriages. And I think we, we were at a discussion the other day where it's, it's, this is transcended religion. This is also racial. Um, and and uh, uh, and he has started, I mean, in, in, when, when, when uh, Uber 2 met Uwintin, um, 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 from the NLD, um, they, he was saying that actually, you know, he, we can't allow any president uh, to be married to a foreigner because they would be susceptible to foreign influences and think about the Chinese. And that was interesting as well. It's not just, you know, Muslim. It's not just South Asian. It's not just Rohingya. It's, it's, it is actually now... Uh, Chinese as well, so it, it, it's become an increasingly xenophobic, generally xenophobic discussion, um, and I think that's something that's not going to disappear and will actually add pressure, particularly if you're going through rapid transition, a process of, of globalization, of leapfrogging, um, and uh, a much economic change, there's bound to be insecurity and there's bound to be more uh, of a move towards radical politics in that direction. Uh, which needs to be confronted post-2015. Um, so I think I'm going to just wrap up quickly and, and then we can launch into a discussion. But, but what I see uh, as, as being the main dangers post-2015 is that the consensus which has underpinned the transition so far may start to dissolve, i.e. we might start questioning the red lines a bit more, which is a necessary part of the process but carries risks. 
Um, and particularly in terms of the mass mobilization, which uh, the ATA generation group have now decided to do, you see a marriage now between politics in APDOR and politics on the ground, which you, you probably see in lead up to 2015, and if not afterwards, which so far has not been tolerated. If you think of why Lepidong has been such a bad crackdown, um, it was because it didn't exist formally within the formal institutional political discussions of NAPIDOR. They had to then send uh, Dasu over, and, 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 and in fact, that was handled quite poorly. But, but anyone operating outside of the uh, parameters, the, that small breathing space in NAPIDOR, uh, was still cracked, on, uh, cracked down on very harshly. And so now you, you start seeing this, this um, uh, movement towards challenging the red lines, which so far the main protagonists haven't done, they've respected. Um, and that's bound to happen, but carries risks, as I said. Um, politics could be left largely rudderless. If, if you're left without any policy direction, and if this is all hinging on, on, on personalities, um, then that carries huge risks, because the disappearance of one or more players, I mean, for example, Tainsein and his entire team, which have been so instrumental in, in the... Uh, in trying to get the, the ethnic uh, discussions uh, going. Um, uh, in my mind, I don't, I don't see where they can politically exist. They're, they're just not viable as, a, as an entity post-2015. They just don't have the, the constituent base. Uh, they've been sidelined from the USDP. Um, so where are we left there? Um, in terms of the military seeing itself as the guardian of the system, I don't think it's beyond reason to assume that Min Aung Hlaing or one of his appointees becomes, well, certainly becomes vice president, if not president. And that would mirror a little bit the, the way that Tain Sein came into the picture. He was never really seen as, as anyone big um, and uh, uh, suddenly emerged uh, out of nowhere. But again, it was sort of uh, the military seeing itself or ex-military seeing itself as the best arbitrators between the, the biggest players. And let's put in a fairly unknown, uh, fairly bureaucratic looking uh, ex, uh, you know, military man and, and make sure that the executive remains independent from what actually happens in, in parliament, or at least that there's, that there's that widening gap. But then you see parliament increasingly asserting itself as a rival government. So that could create institutional pressures. You saw that as well in terms of uh, having you know, Parliament having undermined the Constitutional Tribunal uh, in, in 2012. It's huge. I mean, there, there was no regard for uh, institutional legacy uh, or, or, or setting roots. Um, so I think we've got a, cold, a hot cauldron. We've got politics which, have, which has made a lot of progress into, you know, since, since 2011 and, and, and before that. But at some point, the two will collide. The two, the two phenomenons collide. And uh, that should certainly be interesting, viewed from the sidelines. Uh, could also be quite sad, given, given everything that's, that's been happening. Um, um, and, 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 and very risky. And I think it's about time that the main protagonists realize what's going on and, and try to formulate a plan post-2015, rather than hedge all their bets on 2015. Um, one final thing, I mean, the, the quadripartite discussions, um, that would be a good way of going about it. But so far, uh, uh, President Tainzin, even though he's met uh, Dosu, uh, I think this week, mm. uh, which is only the first time this year, third time ever, uh, fourth time ever, it might be, um, he, you know, I, I, I don't see that happening because of the insistence to play in the rules and, and the constitution having to be sort of deliberated in parliament. So, you know, why should Min Aung Hlaing sit down with uh, uh, Su Chi and, and Thura Shui Man and Tain Sein? And they have such poor regard for one another. So Tain Sein and Shui Man 
Suchi and Minang Hwang, I, I just don't see it happening. It's not gluing together. Uh, so I, I think that potentially you, you're seeing uh, uh, a situation of paralysis uh, dissolve into something which could be a situation of crisis uh, in the lead up and following 2015. It doesn't need to be. There could, there could be very healthy indicators. There could be a healthy pushing of the red lines, but they just need to realize what's coming, the, sto the storms that are brewing, because you can't live a sheltered existence in Yipidol forever. At some point, uh, 2015 comes along, and even if it's uh, you know partially free and fair, you're going to see a more combative style of politics than what we've seen so far. So I'll end it at that. Um, thank you um, so much for your for giving us a general overview of how our politics, how complicated our politics at the moment is. And now I'd like to give a chance to our, our audience to engage directly with our panelists. And, and one of the reasons why I put out this event is that we are talking about the high level of politics here. How complicated, you can see how complicated within the structure. And imagine how um, much impact as it does have on the grassroots people once it's got all rumbled up and then spiraled out within the structure. So I understand that there are those in the audience who are involved in searching projects and uh, doing a lot of work on Burma. So I hope this will help you uh, redefine the model and see how you can work it out strategically in the future as well. So the floor is yours. Um, yes, Kirsten, Pierre, and Karen. Okay, well, um, thanks for three really fantastically interesting presentations. Um, I wondered if we could just broaden the borders a little bit of what we're talking about as Burma, because in the three fantastic presentations, one aspect that was quite missing was the huge population of people who are from this outside the country, mm. refugees, mm. Uh, the migrant workers, the diaspora more generally. And so particularly in thinking about the refugee context, I was really interested earlier by your points in the kind of parallels with the Kenyan era of the early 2000s. And the fact that we have a kind of, in Omen, we have this key interlocutor who is the, the main international interlocutor, if you like, but is also the main refugee hmm. interlocutor. And so that possibility for kind of creating the peacemaker and then marginalizing the peacemaker, if you like, is an interesting idea. And I think that one of the key things that's very different now from the early 2000s is the extent of international buy-in to the idea of a transition. And so that buy-in is really shifting the way that refugees are being responded to, creating the kind of pressures that are potentially leading to people being incentivized to return, maybe earlier than they would like to. And, and so that creates a whole different hotbed of dynamics. So I'd be interested and any of your thoughts on that, but it just sparked for me this idea that we're in a kind of potentially interesting moment in this parallel with the interlocutor, if you like, mm -hmm. between refugees, certainly in the time on the border context, and what's going to happen. So, yeah, I'd be interested in any points that you have. Do you want to go first, Renee? I mean, se several, several thoughts come to mind. Um, the first is that obviously 
they're huge and increasingly sidelined in that those populations on the Thai-Burma border because the emphasis on the part of international donors has now been to flood towards uh, inside the country. Now, I mean, there was probably an overcorrection that took place there and and um, uh, also a, a too, too easy assumption that it would be very easy to repatriate voluntarily uh, these refugees. Um, in fact, I, I, I interned at the International Organization for Migration in 2007. They were just setting up a, a sort of a, a sub-Mekong region um, uh, um, UN process by which to, to, to uh, repatriate refugees. And we quickly found out it was very difficult because these people had often, I mean, many children born in these camps uh, and, and, uh, and parents who were unwilling to come back and so long as there wasn't really peace in the country. Um, so that's linked with the border areas. Then everything relies on trust and, and Uang Min has done a good job at, at, at visiting these, these border camps um, but, uh, and, and building a rapport with, with people on the ground. Um, but, uh, but I don't see him uh, staying post-2015. Post so in short, I think uh, these populations will stay despite pressure from Thailand um, uh, for them to go because they're not... Uh, I mean, and, 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 and viewed from Napidol's perspective, it's also a shame for them. Uh, oh no, we, we can't be seen to be having mass uh, sort of uh, uh, displaced populations outside of our borders because it seems to suggest that we're not doing well or as well as Thailand. So for, as a matter of pride, um, I, I just... Um, you know, would be careful on the part of the international community, international donors, and the government not to hasten that process, uh, and to make sure that it's done in a uh, 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 as incremental and as voluntary uh, a process possible. And it begins with improving the situation on the ground in the border areas in in Burma. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, you probably have a lot more to say on that than I do. Uh, well, no, I mean, I, I agree entirely with, with what you've said. Um, I mean, I think I, the approach I've always tried to take on, on Burma um, has been to, to try to see Burma as a whole, and that includes uh, the border areas and includes actually the wider uh, diaspora. Um, and one of the reasons I wrote uh, the, the, my most recent book, um, Burma, a Nation at the Crossroads, was to try to actually bring together the different uh, elements of Burma, the, the different ethnic nationalities, the refugee situation, as well as the situation inside. Um, certainly, I've noticed, and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of this, I've noticed in my own work um, the shift from the majority of my work being along the borders to now doing more and more inside and spending more time uh, inside. But I've also noticed, this doesn't address the refugee question but it directly, but it does address... Uh, the exiled activist question. Um, I've noticed that in the last couple of years, when I have gone to the border to places like Maysod, uh, whereas three or four years ago, Maysod was a, a, a hive of activity and there were always you know, lots of people that, uh, that I wanted to see and that I could see and I never, you know, I'd, be, I'd spend a week there and I wasn't able to see everyone I wanted to see. I remember last year I went to Mesot, uh, and it was astonishingly quiet compared to the past. And and all the key, I'm not saying you know everyone's gone gone back, of course not, but but all the sort of activists that I generally engaged with um, were either had moved back in or um, were travelling back and forth much more. And and so there was actually much less going on, as it were, in the activist community in in Mesot, and that was a really noticeable difference. 
Um, on the refugee question, though, um, I absolutely agree, um, uh, and, and certainly in, in every advocacy meeting that I've had, um, you know, I've put forward the, the message that they, they cannot possibly go back until, firstly, there's a, um, a, a, a secure peace. I mean, a ceasefire is not a, not a peace, uh, and there's no guarantee that the ceasefire uh, will hold. Indeed, um, n not just, we've, we've spoken earlier about Kachin and Northern Shan State, but, e but even in Karen State, where the ceasefire would appear to be a little bit more uh, secure or, or in place, um, there have been violations of that ceasefire in, in recent months. Um, so, so my first view would be that they can't possibly go back until there is uh, a durable political solution and a, a genuine peace. Secondly, there obviously need to be all, all sorts of um, steps taken in terms of uh, dealing with landmines, um, making sure that there are livelihoods for them to go back to, that their villages that may have been burnt down are, are rebuilt, uh, and that it is, and also as part of the peace process, um, I think there needs to be a significant withdrawal or at least significant reduction in Burma army uh, presence in those areas. And one of the things we've seen in the ceasefire areas is actually, in some areas, the Burma army has used the ceasefire to increase its, its troop numbers. Um, so so none, of the none of the things are in place for them to go back to securely with, with homes to go to, livelihoods to go to, uh, and with security. My sense from, from the conversations I've had, certainly on my last visit in October, November, I didn't sense that there was a big push. Uh, and I was, I was sort of pleasantly surprised. Um, I was worried that the Thais would be putting a lot of pressure on them. My sense from talking to NGOs in Thailand, um, particularly the Thailand-Burma Border Consortium, TBBC, was that actually that, that wasn't happening and that the Thai authorities recognized exactly the things I've just outlined, that the time is not yet ready uh, and, and, uh, and, and that all those conditions need to be put in place. Um, and, and I've even had a sense from the, from the Burmese hmm. side that they're not actually pushing for them to come back. Um, on, the, on the question of... Oh, and, and just one, one last thing on the refugees. The... Um, House of Commons uh, International Development Committee just uh, today um, uh, released. We we both given evidence to it. Um, uh, as well. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes. right. Um, uh, released their report today. Um, I was I was pleased that they took a similar line, and, and uh, not just in terms of the return of, of refugees, but also in terms of DFID funding for the refugees. Um, they, they advocated that that should be continued, um, and that's obviously very welcome. On on um, Ang Min, um, again, I agree with what's been said in terms of uh, we can't put all our hopes in him when we don't know where he'll be after 2015. I, I have never engaged with him directly, personally, but one of the things I've... I've heard sort of conflicting stories about him. Some, some people see him really as a, a genuine um, uh, sort of person in all of this, um, but I've also heard quite frequently from people that he... he ends up promising the earth to, to, to people, that um, he makes all sorts of promises that he must know he can't possibly deliver um, just to get them to sort of sign on the dotted line. Um, and that's, that's certainly worrying in this process, that there obviously needs to be an interlocutor who um, uh, not only can deliver, but actually agrees to things that are realistic to deliver, and, and instead of um, saying what, whatever he thinks uh, the ethnic nationalities want to, to hear from him. Um, 
so that's all I would say, I think, on, on Ang Min. Hmm. I'd only add two small points, and that is that, um, as I said, the current provisions within the Constitution about the, those who may be elected either to the presidency or the parliament um, exclude any of those who have been on border areas, that there is no consciousness of refugee issues in consultation on the Constitution, nor has there been any support from any international donors to allow those voices to go in. And I think that's desperately harmful. Mm. And one quick point about uh, Wang Min is, is I, I would agree that this sort of, even if it's well-intentioned, uh, the framework has been, and, and it's extrapolated from all the previous peace drives, uh, get them to sign on a piece of paper as quickly as possible, and you've resolved it. Um, and it's it's just <laughs> that's not how peace building works. No. I mean, it's it's taken the Philippines about forty years process. to realize that. You know, in yeah. so many fashions, the yeah. public policy and but bureaucracy is about technical process, exactly. not about sort of yeah. encompassing anything more outside of Navy Door or, or Yangon necessarily. And again, I mean, the fixation on, on that green book, which reminds me a bit of Gaddafi's little green book. Yeah. Um, it's a bit bigger, though. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, it's just sort of that you can resolve things by, by the letter of the word and, 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 uh, and, and that, you know, you, you, you transcribe something on paper and it is reality. And it's, there's a huge disjuncture between uh, political reality and reality as prescribed on paper, uh, which, which is a, you know quite an interesting. I mean, someone could probably write a defil about that, but um, um, yeah, ripe for for investigation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yes, um, my name is Pia. Um, I'm interested in Andrew's observation. Yeah, that the peace process and the constitutional reform process are not clearly linked, and I wanted to ask, you, for example. Um, if you predict in your workshops, if you try to say that you are conducting workshops on uh, human rights, if now um, this is a topic in the workshop, what kind of what role does education play in this process to link the local with the more um, with the national developments? Mm. Can you say something mm. about it? Yes, I mean, I haven't gone into um, a lot of depth in the workshops on the Constitution per se, but w what I have done um, particularly is, as well as talking about um, both principles of human rights and international mechanisms um, and also principles of, of how to document human rights violations, I've also included um, in a whole section on, on advocacy um, not only advocacy in the international arena, which is what um, one would have done several years ago, and obviously still do, but um, it would have been limited to that several years ago. I have tried to include um, interaction, interactive sessions on advocacy within Burma, um, because clearly, you know, a few years ago that it was really not possible um, with the extent of the repressive nature of, of, of past successive regimes. Now, with with an elected parliament, um, a national human rights commission, um, a somewhat freer media, um, uh, and all three of those are, are far from perfect. There, there, there's a lot of um, faults, particularly with the national human rights commission. Um, but but I've included uh, discussion about how uh, Burmese active activists might engage those um, mechanisms within the country when they have cases of human rights violations and things they want to, to advocate on, um, as well as lo looking to the more traditional international mechanisms. Yeah, thanks. 
Um, yes, hi, it's uh, my name is Peter Popper um, from The Independent. I've got um, three questions, if I right. One is for Andrew. About this, um, the quadripartite talks to come up repeatedly, I'm a little unclear about what is or what you envisage might be the outcome of such talks, whether this is regarded as a way to, to short circuit the uh, referendum requirements for constitutional change in a completely informal way. Um, so authoritarian way, or, or what? That's that's one question. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one is uh, you mentioned this this, this phenomenon of the personalisation of politics, which has obviously been the, the the clearest thing about the NLD for a long time. But um, in in the kind of the difficulty of of locating the USDP's policies on any kind of a Mm. A, a, a normal political spectrum is also um, shows that that is not functioning as a political party as we understand it. Um, back in the 50s, there was talk about the, the entourage parties, the way that, um, you know, whether Ponsal, Hulu, or the others, basically a party was a charismatic or at least a powerful leader and his followers. Do you think we're tending that way again? If so, is it something very perilous? And the third one, if I may, has anybody got any uh, ideas for how we could do something about the appalling Rohingya uh, issue? Um, now having been to Arakan State, um, it's, it's clear that, in a way, that the arrival of electoral democracy has exacerbated the problem because it's given the Arakan nationalists a platform, an issue, uh, and a megaphone. At the same time, there is a objective demographic problem with the, uh, the balance between Muslims and non-Muslims in the state. And I just wonder whether anybody has an idea, or if there are ideas in circulation among diplomats or anybody else, of ameliorating that appalling situation. Thank you. Uh, in relation to the quadripartite discussions, um, it's not a method of bypassing the constitutional arrangements. The, as I understand it, the idea is to reach some consensus about what changes will be carried forward and then put to the electorate. Um, although these committees have ostensibly been deliberating and taking into account public submissions as to what the public wants changed in the constitution, in most senses that's just given space to the key stakeholders to, I think, probably negotiate through substitutes with them, or, or to at least get their, 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 their positions out there. So, for instance, NLD made public um, about four weeks ago now its submission to the committee. Um, USDP leaked very sort of strategically what its position on a, key, a number of key issues were. I don't think that they're interacting directly in any formal sense, but I think they're using this process to sound out where they stand, and it's been quite useful in that regard. I think the idea behind quadripartite um, negotiations would be that they would bring together the four people who would really control what would be put to, to the electorate. Right. Um, and, and that will be the only way that any negotiated outcome of actual change will result. Hmm. I think that, that you know, what, whatever the implementation committee puts forward um, won't be what those on the committee actually think ought to happen. It will be a representation of what they think that where the political influence and power lies. So, whatever the quadripartite 
court's result to do would not circumvent either 75%, 76% requirements no. or the 51%. No. no, I think everyone is still talking about following those right. requirements. But I think that, I mean, the, ironically, there may be gray space there. Uh, mm. um, yeah. And uh, again, it's not legal. It's, it, it doesn't uh, follow the, the, the sort of jumping through the hoops that, that you would expect. But in a situation which it, where, in which it's so clear that there are these underlying realities, yeah. um, it is probably the most pragmatic way of approaching things. But it is very top-down. This entire transition has been top-down. Um, but but uh, one thing that that is quite interesting would be uh, because there's a, there's a time lag between the election and the presidential nomination and then subsequent sort of ratification um, that you could actually provoke a constitutional crisis uh, in so far as as were uh, Dosu to be uh, nominated for by one of the electoral colleges, which presumably she would have the the, the power to do in, in the post 2015 uh, parliament. Uh, as one of the candidates, then you'd have to discuss the merits of Article 59 and 60 and, and whether they'd be applied and how they are applied. And that's where, having had a meeting beforehand, you could start shaping, you know, what are you likely to do? If Should I do this? You know, how are you likely to react? Because it is possible that you, you could still say, you know, that the, 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 the I mean, I'm not sure I'm not the constitutional expert, but but, but that the uh, qualifications for the presidency are, are essentially illustrative and selective rather than a definitive uh, illustrative and selective. So, for example, you know, you know having a CV in, in a, a, as a military background or at least being aware of these military issues, affairs, um, um, you, 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 you know, you, it depends how it's interpreted and there's space for interpretation uh, by, by the protagonist. There's no space for interpretation on, on the, the citizenship, citizenship requirement. Yeah, and, and I think that I mean my sense is that there may be some wriggle room about well acquainted yeah. and what that might mean, um, and it's used as almost a trump card that the military holds. Yeah. But given that um, the one of the individuals nominated for vice president um, was actually this round renounced, yeah. was, had to be um, withdraw because his son was um, in Singapore. Or was yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he failed to meet that requirement, and that will no doubt be trotted out as at a the presence. point that when we look at it, saying, "Well, we did, we, you know, we removed our, our candidate, uh, who was, I think, the military's candidate." For yeah. So we did that. The vice president. You know, the, the, that's the we're following it. You, you must do so as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that I mean, the reason, the hesitancy on the part of Min Aung Hlaing to sit down with these politicians, these dirty civilians, <clears throat> is the fact that there is no scope for discussion. Yeah. As much as Shui Man has, you know, promised uh, the NLD that there is uh, scope for discussion, and there may be between them. At the end of the day, you still need that military uh, block to vote for you. And at yeah. the moment, it doesn't seem as if they want to even set that precedent, because yeah. even it's a, even if it's a small change, a small alteration, one excuse, um, then they would uh, assume that that would be sort of opening the, the floodgates to, yeah. to to more requests and more political instability. So I don't I think mean, you've got there's also a danger of viewing the military simply as one block within Parliament. Yeah, because um, they, they have voted differently. They do yeah. vote differently, and from the conversations I've had with them and with others, there is probably about a 10 to 15 percent block who might be willing to go against what their masters might say, um, and who are sort of have reformist tendencies. The the risk though with that is that they're generally replaced on, on a six monthly basis, so you don't have the same people there. Um, I met one who has been there for for the whole term of parliament. That's extraordinary. He's the only person I have, I've 
I, I am aware of who's been in that position. But those positions are also used to sort of identify individuals who will later take on quite important roles. Mm. And they don't see themselves as sort of men, well, now two women as well, with guns sitting in Parliament. They see themselves as parliamentarians. Mm. Uh, and it's a matter of pride that they feel that they're involved. They, they call it playing national politics. And it doesn't have the sort of um, pejorative connotations that that verb has in English. It has the sense that we're practising, you know, this idea of what it means to, to run public policy, and they're very proud of that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there are two other questions as well. <laughs> Shall I just try and respond to the Rohingya uh, yeah. question? Um, I mean, clearly I think it, it's the most intractable and difficult and depressing issue of all the issues in, in Burma um, because of the attitudes um, of the Rakhine and, and indeed the attitudes of, of some in, in government. And I think it's, it's the wider... Um, religious intolerance and anti-Muslim campaign in a, in a sense is somewhat, that's also challenging, but I think it's somewhat easier to address. Um, I think I do have hope that through various initiatives of, of you know, in, interreligious dialogue and, and um, developing the rule of law and, and protection and for, for communities, for the wider Muslim community uh, in the long term, I, I, I think it's possible to re resolve that situation. But for the Rohingyas, it's so much harder. Um, I think there are... I, I have three specific um, uh, things that... Oh, sorry, four specific things that, um, that I think could be done from, from outside. They all involve a much, much stronger international uh, response. Um, I mean, the international community has, has spoken out uh, to a certain extent, um, but I think there's a lot more they could do. There seems to be a... And this relates more generally as well, a a belief on the part of particularly Western governments, uh, in contrast to the policy uh, just a few years ago before this, this opening up uh, began, there seems to be now a policy on the part of governments that uh, they think they, they should raise these things privately behind closed doors with the government but not make too much public noise. Uh, and I think that's, that's been proven to be ineffective on this issue. I, I think they do need to be much stronger um, uh, and more outspoken publicly. And specifically, the things they should be calling for, uh, one obviously is pressure for, for um, not just uh, a access for humanitarian aid organizations, particularly in light of this awful suspension of MSF, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières from uh, Rakhine, um, but, but also for, for humanitarian aid organizations to be, to be given protection to operate in those areas, because one of the reasons other aid organizations have, have pulled out is because of the threats they yeah. themselves face. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Um, secondly, th th there are proposals um, that, that various advocacy groups have put out, and which I support, for an independent international inquiry. Um, there have been various inquiries by Tain Sein's government, all of which have, have really come to, to nothing, and indeed, um, been been uh, untruthful in in um, failing to acknowledge the the, the violence and, and the massacres. Um, so I think there should be an international uh, inquiry made up of independent experts into the violence in Rakhine over these last um, two years. Thirdly, though, I think one of the roots of the problem is the the narrative that I think probably started with Nguyen and has perpetuated uh, through regimes, but is now obviously widely felt in the country, this narrative that the Rohingyas are um, illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. And, and 
Lord Alton and myself and one or two others have, have floated the idea with policymakers of could there be some kind of, um, separate from the inquiry into the violence, uh, some kind of uh, independent um, inquiry led by uh, a combination of, of academics, um, uh, including, I think, it must include some Asian academics and it must include um, some Buddhist uh, academics, into the, the historical claims of the Rohingyas. Um, the evidence is clearly there. I mean, there are, there are records in the British Library. There are uh, all sorts of historical records uh, about uh, their history going back uh, you know, many generations. Um, Rohingyas put their history as going back many hundreds of years. Others might dispute the exact number of years, but, but clearly they, they have a historical claim. And if there can be a, an independent investigation by, by respected academics um, to make the case to counter the, the narrative. Um, I'm not saying that will solve everything, but it might begin a process of, of just challenging uh, the, the, the narrative. Um, just on the history, I, I just share one an anecdote. Um, I have a very good friend um, in Rangoon who actually was here in Oxford a, a couple of years ago uh, in June 2012 when the violence in Rakhine first uh, started. And one of the things that has shocked me with, with different friends is uh, people who are, who've been amazing champions of democracy and human rights. Their, their attitudes on the Rohingya question are um, you know, often very concerning and, and, and very depressing. He was an exception, though. Um, and I asked him, uh, and I actually didn't know that he himself is Rakhine. Um, he lives in Rangoon, and it, it had never come out particularly that, uh, what his ethnicity was. Um, and so I'd assumed he was Burman, but it turns out he's Rakhine. Uh, and he said to me, it's, it's ridiculous to, to say that they're illegal immigrants. Um, uh, he said, I, I, I know that they have been in Rakhine State for, for many generations. And I was feeling rather reassured that uh, he was stating that position. Um, and, and he is very sympathetic to the Rohingyas. But he then went on to say, do, do you know how I know uh, that they've been there for many generations? So I said, no, t tell me. He said, well, my grandfather was beheaded by a range. <laughs> so he said they were there in my grandfather's day. So, so they, you know, they, they, they should have citizenship. And I thought, well, I'm not sure I can make the case in quite those terms. <laughs> um, but that leads to the last point, which is the point about citizenship. And, and clearly that has been raised and, and pushed, but it needs to be pressed much more. So I would say aid in the immediate term, an inquiry into the violence, an inquiry into, into the historical uh, claims of the Rohingyas to, to try and challenge that narrative um, and ultimately leading to, to uh, changing the citizenship law. But none of those are easy. Um, and none of them would enjoy the support of it, it, even a tiny fraction of either Arakanese or Burman Buddhists. No. Um, I mean, we're talking Absolutely. about an international consensus. Yes. Nothing to do, nothing that would change the attitudes on the ground. Around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the only thing that might, in the very long term, change attitudes on the ground is, is if somehow we could, um, because I, I think there's a, there's a sort of there's a there's the extreme Rakhine nationalists who have a deep, deeply felt hatred, prejudice against the Rohingyas, um, and then there's a tiny, tiny fraction where you have to really look carefully to find. Um, people who, who see things the way we see things and the way the Rohingyas see things. But then I think in between, uh, my experience with a lot of my, my Burmese friends is that it is not that they have a 
some do, but but the majority of my Burmese friends, I don't think, have a, a, the kind of deeply felt racism that the ex Rakhine extremists have. Um, I think it's that they have bought into this propaganda that they are illegal immigrants, and so they say to me, "Look, it's it's you know it's a question of immigration. They just just need to." Um, and if if by some kind of inquiry that affirms the, their historical claims, if that can in the long term challenge that narrative, that might help to change attitudes in that in that majority in between. Um, but it would be a long process. Yeah.